0: We are starting a brand new series this week um, called Red Letter Day. So a couple things to think about, and this is wild to think about already, but I know how many of you did any Mardi Gras stuff at all? During the any Mardi Gras festivities? A few, yeah? A couple of us did, that's right. And... Um, People were like, what's that even about anyway? Well, I don't know if you all know, and we don't usually talk about this stuff much at Family Bible Church, but this last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, right, which begins the season of Lent, and that's known as the 40 days before Easter. So all this stuff moves every year. This week, whenever I was preparing the message, I dug into the, how the dates are founded for Easter, and it's really interesting, actually, um, and uh, I thought that was, was pretty wild. So everything is backdated, 40 days from the day that Christ died on the cross, and uh, with that in mind, then why 40 days? Well, 40 days is how long Jesus spent battling in the desert with the, se- the tempter, Satan, right? And so the church has done this historically. And um, with this new series, we're going to spend the next 40 days uh, looking toward the cross of Christ. And uh, the series is called Red Letter Day. It's actually developed by um, some friends of ours at Life Church, the materials and stuff. We're preaching our own, but the, the concept was theirs, and it was a look at the words that Jesus says from the cross and why those matter. I know uh, many, many times it feels like we're going through the year, and all of a sudden, you know, you have Christmas, and you have some stuff, and you have Easter, and you have these kind of high points, but the question is, what is happening before you get to Easter Sunday morning, right? And we're looking forward to Easter, right? Amen? <laughs> Love Easter, but what leads up to that, and <laughs> the... Uh, the, the, the final words of Jesus uh, from the cross. By the way, one more thing I want to mention about this 40-day thing is, uh, I'm not sure if you all know this, but the, the spring campaign for 40 Days for Life just started. Talked about the relevant banquet on Tuesday night uh, this week. Well, the 40 Days for Life campaign where we're praying at the clinic in Granite City started. And if you don't want to go and pray in person, I would invite you, I'm, I've been wearing this now again, to remind us to pray every day that God would end abortion. Right? That, that we, would, we would value life. We talk about this uh, war thing happening, but that we would value life ourselves. And so that's another way to tie in the 40 days as we lead into Easter with the 40 Days for Life campaigns. We pray that, that we would learn to honor life amongst ourselves as we look toward the Easter hope. Um, we're going to consider the words of Jesus on the cross, and they're profound words because they're final words. And I would, I would say something at the beginning of the series is this that the, the, the last things you say in this life matter right I was thinking about a a friend of mine when I was at my previous church I went to visit him in the hospital and uh, it was the last time I was going to see him and I can tell you this and this is just what happened he told me keep the faith his last words in this earth to me on this earth were keep the faith I was a young man in my faith and I was just like freaked out a little bit you know I didn't know him that well why would you why would you say that to me Another friend of mine who was a mentor, a leader in the church, um, had a friend who passed away, and they had been believers together since they were children. At 10 years old, he passed away. His friend passed away to like 75, 80 years old, something like that, and he said the last words his best friend said to him is, I'm going to find out about Jesus. I found that a little disconcerting myself. I was like, don't tell me that. At the end, you still have things to find out about Jesus? But his words weren't the words of lack of faith, but faith, I'm about to see with my own eyes. Isn't that what Job says in the Bible? My own eyes and not another. I will see God. Well, this isn't just any last words. This is the last words of Jesus himself that we're going to consider in the series. And, and I, I want to think with you real quickly here that perhaps we could say that the last words of Jesus... Um, could be different, because you go, well, he's the son of God. He knows, right? But I want us to just think about the the very last things Jesus is going to say as he faces the cross, and today, those very powerful words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to explore that today together. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to pray as we get into God's word. Pray with me, if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for a chance to look toward Easter again, to, to consider again the resurrection hope, but before we get there, that we would consider the price that you paid for us, that we would think deeply and seriously and soberly about the reality of the cross. And Father, this morning we pray that it would be your Holy Spirit teaching us, that it would be your wisdom that we would gain, and that we could be functionally changed for this life. That because we know you, because you live in us, that we would actually live life differently, perhaps in surprising ways. And so help us with that this morning, Father. Teach us as we learn from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So so in thinking about how we get into this headspace with Jesus, I wonder, um, have you ever found life to be really hard? You know, Dale already shared this morning that our friends in Ukraine are terrified of what's happening right now around them, right? And and um, there are people all over the world who are concerned. We've just come out of a global pandemic, which some people think we're still in, and they're terrified still to this day. Have you ever felt like life is hard? As a matter of fact, it's interesting that we can have life on a big scale going wrong, like global events, and then we can have personal crisis that are just pressing in on us, crushing us. Have you ever felt in those moments as though God had abandoned you? That God who made you, that knows you, had left you alone. I'm going to ask you to turn this morning uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we're going, to, we're going to talk through a few verses here. Matthew 27, 27 through 46. This is what the word says. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a a crown of thorns, and they sat it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him, and they mocked him. All hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him, they took the staff, and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off his robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. I would assume all of you know where we are in the story of Jesus right now, but I want to remind you that this is after Jesus' birth, right? His miraculous birth. It's after 30 years of anonymity, basically, except for we get that one story when he's 13. And it's after three years of faithful, loving, you know, God-oriented ministry. (laughs) That Jesus had done nothing wrong. And this is his experience. That those who were given authority mocked him. And the mocking here is king of the Jews. I want to point out a couple things. They drape him in scarlet. That's the royal colors. They put a a crown of thorns on his head. We know the symbology well, but, you know, imagine the difference between a golden crown and a crown of thorns. a, A crown of glory and a crown of pain. And then, to add insult to injury, they bow down and they mockingly hail him. These are soldiers who are under someone else's authority. They have an actual king. They know what it means to mock a king, and they have no respect for Jesus. Well, as if that weren't all enough, I think there's a a verse that just stood out to me when I was preparing. They then dressed him in his own clothes. They took off all the mocking clothes and put him in the clothes that he had shown up in, which I can't help but imagine were humble, ordinary, and they let him out to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced Simon to carry the cross of Jesus. Much speculation about why that is, he was, you know, weakened, they just wanted to, prove their power to someone else, that you have to go, that this could be you, Simon. Carry this cross at the threat of your life. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Uh, We're going to come back to that later in the series, what's happening there with them offering Jesus something to drink. And here it is. When they had crucified him. When they had crucified him. Five words. You know what strikes me about this? It's so casually mentioned in the gospel. I mean, I can think of fewer things that are more important than Jesus dying on the cross... And here the gospel writers go, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. It's passively mentioned. It's mentioned as if it's not much to even take attention to. What is going on here with these words? After they had crucified him. We've reimagined this scene so many times. I don't know if you have, but I've imagined it and reimagined it. There are movies made about it, and we have a lot of symbology about it and things that we think about and reflect on in this moment. But in the scriptures here in Matthew, it's mission so casually. I mean, granted, the rest of the Bible develops the theme, but here in the gospel narrative, it's so ordinary, a most extraordinary thing. As a matter of fact, I would say that the fact that it's mentioned in the past tense almost seems to imply it's just another day on the job. Who is crucifying him? Those mocking soldiers. And what are they doing? Just following orders. Just another day. You and I might imagine, no, Bella, it can't be true. No one's that brutal. Who does it on the daily like that? But for these guys, it's just their job. You know how I think that that, you know how I can prove that from scripture? The next line says, Then they cast lots for his clothes. I just want you to imagine that. You've been dressed up as a king. You've been put back in your clothes. And then even that, when you're crucified, is taken from you. Revealed for the whole world to see. And as you're there being killed as part of someone's job, they gamble to take your possessions. Imagine it. They couldn't have thought this was very something very extraordinary. It's just, I mean, just his clothes. Who wants those? Thinking about the war that we're watching from a world away, half a world away, I saw a video of a soldier who pulled someone else's boots. Those are good boots. Just another day, another brutal day in this life of suffering. Think of the humiliation for Jesus. Oof. Think of the inhumanity he's witnessing. Picking it up, it says, And sitting down, they kept watch over him. This is verse 36. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's the charge. Here is Jesus, king of the Jews. I want to think about this for a minute. Um, It's making fun of Jesus, just like they did back there privately. They're doing it out here publicly. It's also making fun of the Jewish people, the Jewish faith, the scripture says so. They protested. Don't, don't put up there, he said he's king. Say he claimed to be king of the Jews. But what is, what is the authorities doing? They're saying, you petty religious people, you've killed one of your own who claimed to be your king, mocking the whole system of faith. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews, 38. Two robbers were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. Again, we're going to come back to that later in the series. And those who passed by hurled insults at him. Now, he was mocked privately. Now he's being mocked publicly on a cross. And those who passed by hurled insults. Who? Whoever happened to be walking by and seeing Jesus began to insult him. The kind of folks who would show up at a crucifixion to just gawk at it. What what happens? What do they say? They're shaking their heads and they're saying, "Verse forty, who are who um, who are you? Wait, you who are to destroy the temple and build it in three days." First thing they might make fun of: "Save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God." First things we see: you're the one that said you're going to destroy a temple and build it in three days. You're so powerful, right? Save yourself. Imagine. Come down from that cross if you are the son of God. A claim that Jesus had made many times. As a matter of fact, a claim that got him in the bad, uh, the bad um, side of the Pharisees. Blasphemer. See, he said he's the son of God. You claim it. Now, prove it. Look at verse 4 or 41. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus. So, who here? These are religious leaders chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. Those who ought to know better, those who ought to have some discernment about what is happening, those who, if for no other reason, ought to have some compassion, some sense of injustice. 42, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Look at the claim. Oh, he's going to save people? He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. There's the the mocking from the Jews. Let him come down now, listen to this, and we will believe in him. (laughs) You wanted us to believe in you? Just come off the cross and we'll believe in you. Just just demonstrate your power. Prove it to me that you're God. And I'll believe. And here's probably the most uh, inappropriate accusation against Jesus. He trusts in God. You see that? You, you might wonder with me, like, what is Jesus doing on the cross? Four words. He trusts in God as a mocking, as a mocking. Oh, you claim to have faith. Here you are on the cross. The one who believes in God. The one who trusts God. The one who claims to be the son of God. And you're on the cross. That, they mean that as an insult, Oh, you claim to believe in God? Look at all the suffering. <laughs> Look at the spectacle of this. He trusts in God as a way to mock Jesus. They knew this was true, by the way. His whole life, he claimed to trust in God with everything. He claimed that God had sovereign authority over everything. And here the Pharisees mock him with his own faith, his own belief, his own confidence. Let God rescue him now if God wants him, because he said, I am the Son of God. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable in general, but it's remarkable because it comes from religious leaders. Who, who do they claim to believe in? Mocking him for believing in God. 44, in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him, remember one on the right, one on the left, also heaped insults on him. 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Darkness fell upon everyone, but most particularly Jesus himself. Darkness covers all the land. For three hours have you ever felt a darkness closing in around you have you ever felt hopelessness surround you just crushing it what do you do What would you do in the moment of hopelessness? Well, here's our core verse. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not words you'd expect to hear. What is Jesus doing in this moment of hopelessness, of brokenness, of suffering, and of pain, pressing on every side? What is Jesus doing with these words from the cross? The Greek here actually says that it says "cried out." It kind of sounds nice, like a story time, but it means that he screamed these words. They weren't whimpers from the cross. They were like a soul-level scream. Jesus, who always had confidence in God, always trusts God with everything his whole life. Now, when pressed upon, cries out publicly, loudly. And notice something else here, by the way. That the authors of the book capture not just the original words, which is a unique thing here in this text, but then the translation of the words as well. I mean, how many foreign languages do you know? You know these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabakthani." How interesting that they give us that and they say, by the way, this is what it means so you don't miss the point of the words. Cried out in the local dialect so people could understand. It wasn't a mysterious language. It wasn't some language of angels that they go, what was he saying? No one can hear. No, everyone knew that Jesus on the cross was crying out. And to whom? To my God. He doesn't say, Abba, Daddy, Dad. There's this perceived distance in the cry where from someone who he felt so intimate with who knew so well felt so far away that he says my god my god and then the words why have you forsaken me you know the uh, great reformer martin luther famously said of this verse God forsakes God. Who can imagine that? Who can understand it? Because over the years, the most deep uh, theological thinkers, the most studied and and, uh, spirit-filled people look at this passage and they're just amazed and um, mystified. We can answer it with some nice theology while we know what's going on, we can You know, in our minds, we can kind of logic it all together and take all the truth and the emotion out of it. But the reality is that there's a mystery captured that God forsakes Jesus. What's Jesus doing? A few things I can see. Jesus is still talking to God. Despite the mocking, He's still having conversations. Doesn't address the crowd, doesn't speak, and he just talks to God publicly and openly. Jesus expects good things from God still. He expects good things. You know how I know? Because he says, Why have you forsaken me? It's not what I expect from you. And then, third, and most profoundly, Jesus is still waiting for God's reply. Why have you forsaken me? I wonder in our life and maybe in your life, what do you do in hard times? What do you do in the hardest of times? We mentioned earlier this idea that the world just seems crazy, right? But but we're you know, talking about the imagery of the Russia and Ukraine and stuff, we see the tanks going through the street. And as we were worshiping this morning after Dale mentioned, I thought, what would we do if there were tanks rolling up and down the streets of Highland right in front of us? And it was the enemy and they'd come to take everything from us. What would we do? Would we still stand here and sing? <laughs> would we still stand here and say, you are in charge of everything? You know, some of the worship songs we sing are interesting because... We presume to know what God is doing. We sing those things like, all things are possible. You know what I mean? (laughs) When everything's going wrong, what do we do in hard times or in the hardest of times? I want to talk to you about uh, the gospel. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to cover a few things here 8, 18 through 39. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. Uh, by the way, we're doing a Roman study in our, our small group, and it's been awesome. I'm not saying that to you're welcome, but also if you want to start a Bible study, I can't encourage you enough to start a Bible study and get together with people and just read God's word together. It's a powerful experience. Romans chapter 18, Paul, writing to the church, says this, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I believe this morning Emily prayed something very similar to that, that all this stuff is little compared to eternity. Look at this. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own decision, but by the will of the one who is subjecting it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage in decay to decay and brought into the glorious freedom that is the children of God. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, in these moments of frustration, what God is actually doing, and God is the one frustrating, so that we might long for the full freedom and glory he has. In those binding moments, those, those moments that you would never wish for, God is at work. That the creation itself will be liberated, verse 21, from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of all the children of God. This is the hope of the church. 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up till the present moment. Not only so, but we ourselves who, have, who are the first fruits, have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. The hope uh, of what we have, are, who hopes for what he already has, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we are We wait for it patiently. These seasons of frustration are for God's glory and for our good, for freedom, for longing for freedom, and for things to be right, for God to set things right. The redemption of our bodies wait. Um, Yeah, we are the first fruits of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is sent to help us in these times of trouble, what, would that, what does that mean? That means that in the moment of any difficulty of our life, we ought not be as the world is, hopelessly lost in the moment. Rather, we ought to sense God's spirit, or at least be dialoguing with the spirit of God about what is happening here, that, that the spirit of God would be available to us in those hard moments because we groan inwardly waiting for our, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 26, in the same way, here it is, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, listen to this, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us and groans with groans that words cannot express because he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for saints in accordance with God's will. It means that God's never abandoned us anywhere. Never abandon us anywhere. In the hardest of times, in the most difficult times, no matter what we're facing in life, God does not leave us alone. Now we look at this. Come right into the twenty-eight, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose that God is always good. I want to sit on this for a minute because I was thinking about the cross of Christ and this idea of what is God doing in, in, with Jesus in that moment. That God in all things works for good. That everything he does works for good. Now I want to take this out of the kind of heady theological space and put it into our lives. When things are not going well, what is God doing he says, I'm working for your good. But how often do we experience it that way? I would think not very often. Oh, Lord, just make it stop. Oh, Lord, don't, don't let this happen to me. Oh, Lord, how will I survive this? No. Know this. In all things, God works for good. Wait. Not just for good, like some theoretical good in the world. God's doing a good thing here, Right. But no, that God works for the good of those. What? That in the moment, God's working, this is hard, for our good. When we don't understand, when we don't see it, that God is doing something good in us, for us. Well, for for everyone, what's it say? Good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I have a question. Do you love God? Do you love God? If you love God, then whatever God is doing in your life is for good, for your good. Good. You say, well, how do I know I'm called according to God's purpose? That means the purpose that He is for, He has set out for you. <laughs> it doesn't mean some mysterious purpose of like, I don't know what God's purpose is for my life. That's not what He's talking about here. He's saying there's a purpose in what God is doing, and the purpose is working good in you, that His purpose is your call in this life. You know, one of the things that I hear Christians often say, and, and uh, it's one of those kind of classic kind of mis, you know, um, Conversation we have is why do good things happen to bad people? One of my favorite responses amongst believers is why not me? Why not us? Who else will we have it happen to? The baddies? <laughs> Wait, what might Christ demonstrate in us because of the suffering? Because of the hardship? What good might he manifest in us? Why not us? Do you love God? Lord, you know that we love you. He works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who are we to say what God's purposes are? 29, Because those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, Adelphos, believers. Listen, that we might be conformed to Jesus' own image. That in this life we might become more like him. 30, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. There's a, a track to sainthood, and I'm not talking about some holiness track, I'm talking about a sanctification that happens through this life, and many times, I'm not saying it must, but many times through suffering, through hardship. One of the false gospels is that it's obvious God loves me because everything's going great. Not true. <laughs> not true. Not true. It's it's a lie of the world. Many times, when the hardest things are happening, God is doing his most profound work in us. For what? For our calling, for our justification, and for our glorification. That he might become our forebearer, our foreleader, that we might be conformed to his image. Now you know this verse. <laughs> listen to where Paul goes with this. And this is the thing, right? We love to hear this verse out of context. We love to hear it, but listen to where Paul goes. What then shall we say in response to all this? What, what should our response be? Here's some things Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's on our side, who can come against us and make anything stick? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He didn't keep Jesus from us. What would he keep from us that's worth having? What in this life? What in the life to come? He has graciously graciously given us all things, 32, who will bring any charge against those with whom God has chosen? Uh, Can I just stop here a minute and say, do you ever hear those nagging voices? Who do you think you are? What do you think? You're so special. You know that thing that we sometimes can get? These accusations. Listen to the word of God. Who can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Who can bring it? Listen, it is God who justifies. Who is it then that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding. The idea here is praying for us, interceding for us right now. Listen to this. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, church, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. By his loving us, we overcome. Because, here's Paul, I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, not the present nor the future, not angels nor demons, not life nor death, nor any powers, uh, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the Bill Dempsey translation, nothing can separate us from God's love. So are some things. When it's hard, right, what do we do? We know that God is good. And we know that his love never fails. And we cannot be separated from it. Why? Listen to the word driving it home because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The love that God has for us is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. His demonstration for us in everything. We are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us. So what's going on with the cross? (laughs) What's going on with Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabakani. In that moment, God is reaching across time and space to save us. Listen, God in that moment is doing a work in Jesus Christ that can be done nowhere else through no one else. God is reaching us. You have a question? Why didn't Jesus come off the cross Why didn't he demonstrate his power? He was. He trusts in God. We know the end of the story, but how powerful is that? That God was accomplishing the highest good in all of history, and he was doing so to save all those who would believe, everyone who would believe. We want to make enemies out of people baddies, right? Jesus cried out and was dying for baddies like us. He was reconciling to himself all those who would believe. Why is God forsaking him? For us. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the beauty, the depth, the totality of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for the ways that we minimize it, we, we, we walk past it casually as if it wasn't the most profound thing to ever happen in our lives or in anyone else's. Draw us into the story in a way that we recognize our position, not as those who stand condemned, but those who stand loved. When the days press in on us, Father, may your Holy Spirit well up within us to claim again that we trust in you, no matter what. Father, we thank you for your love that overcomes everything. Be glorified. Today, many of us might have a hard time believing that there's a love like that. I pray, Lord, that you would convince us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.